listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. Today my special guest is my old friend Krista Castaneda, who I've known since I was in law school working at a Dallas law firm in the summer. And Krista was a first-year associate attorney at that firm. Since then, Krista has had an outstanding career as an oil and gas litigator. We worked together on a big win for the late T. Boone Pickens out in Pecos, Texas in 2016, and as a politician, most recently seeking statewide office in 2020 for a seat on the Texas Railroad Commission, which despite the anachronistic name, is the primary regulator for our state's gigantic oil and gas industry. Krista is a well-known voice in the state today about energy issues, and I've asked her to speak with me today about the electricity crisis that our state faced in February 2021, and whether we have done enough as a state here in Texas to protect ourselves against another one. So now, Krista, that you've had some time to recover and catch a breath from your race for the Railroad Commission, uh, how's business? What are you up to these days? Business is good. Lots of oil and gas-related commercial disputes going on, and a little bit of litigation over the ERCOT grid failure. You know, I've seen your name on some grid litigation, and I've seen it in the press talking about issues related to our electric grid. And that's what I'd like to visit with, with you today about and get us on the same page, make sure we're talking about the same thing. What is the grid and who runs our grid in Texas? Who are the players on this thing? All right, so the grid is our electric generation and distribution system. So everything from the raw materials needed to generate electricity to the generators, to the high line distributors, to the local service distributors, to your house and to the wall plug, that's the ERCOT grid. ERCOT stands for Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and it is both the name of the grid and the name of the agency that oversees the generation and distribution of electricity on the grid. Now, I'm looking back in time here, back in February, we had the famous outage and we were all shivering because we had electricity problems. What exactly did, did ERCOT do at that time and who was supposed to be overseeing them and making sure they were doing a good job? Okay, so by statute, ERCOT is the nonprofit agency that is set up to oversee the grid, but they actually report to the Public Utility Commission of Texas. And back in February, the three commissioners were appointed by the governor. Things have changed by legislation since, but that's generally how it works. And I think the thing to know about ERCOT is, is it's a large agency, mostly comprised of electrical engineers and people who actually know about the general and distribution of electricity along with regulatory type people. And there is a function in ERCOT that both provides for the physical delivery of electricity, but also it is the financial exchange upon which the contracts for generation and sale of electricity are settled. So I think when we talk about what happened in February, we need to focus on both the physical failures and the financial aftermath two things really important now, particularly in the ongoing litigation and review of the agency. So let's get into that and just step back in time and talk about what happened in February. We all know it got real dark and it got real cold across a lot of Texas and probably from what I hear could have gotten a lot worse physically, financially, however it's easiest for you to lay it out for us. What the heck happened? So let's talk about the physical failures. Because all of 254 counties, every county in Texas, was in this extended 
freeze, the demand for electricity was at an all-time high. Everybody needed electricity to heat their houses, and moreover, people were at their homes in the midst of this freeze trying to stay warm. Meanwhile, because we don't have the ability to store electricity at large scale yet, we don't have the very large batteries, we have to generate the electricity at the same time it is being used. So when we plug a lamp into the outlet, the electrons that drive the electricity need to be being created at about the same time somewhere as we call it upstream. I'll just jump in for one second. I've worked on electricity case several years ago and I had not appreciated that. I always thought electricity sort of I, mean, I never really thought about it. I just sort of assumed it floated through the lines or something. But the way he said it, what, what you just said was, when you flip on the light, the electricity is traveling to you from the generator of the electricity at the speed of light. I mean, it is instantaneous. Some windmill or some power plant or whatever is making it. That was a real eye-opener. I didn't know that until he explained it to me. And, of course, it relates directly to why our grid behaves so poorly. Well, and in addition to that, if the supply of electricity doesn't meet the demand of electricity, if those two things aren't in perfect balance right. at all points in time, the grid becomes tremendously unstable. And so the electric grid has to run at a constant 60 hertz. And if you have, as we did in February, the supply being so overmatched by the demand, you have to kick people off the grid to where demand comes back into line with supply or the frequency drops. And what happens when the frequency drops? All of the equipment that is used to generate and distribute electricity is rated for a constant 60 hertz. And if it becomes too much out of that tolerance, the whole thing shuts down. It's just like if you plug in one too many hair dryers or lamps into your house and your panel trips, the same thing happens on the electric grid. And furthermore, if it doesn't protect itself, then you have catastrophic failures of equipment that cannot be replaced for weeks or months. Very bad. Almost as bad as crossing the streams in Ghostbuster, that kind of <laughs> catastrophic failure. Yes, I think that's an excellent analogy. The streams were within four minutes of being crossed. So the physical problem, supply and demand, way out of whack, on the brink of something far worse than what actually happened. Financial? Well, before we get to financial, right. do you want to know how they got so far out of whack? I would be fascinated to know that. Basically, everybody in Texas experienced this event together. Even if you personally had power, you knew nine-tenths of your neighbors did not, at least here in Dallas and in many other places throughout the state. But what happened, and the reason we did not have enough supply, is that our generation capacity failed. And we have many types of generators in Texas. We have wind. We have solar, but then what we have, what's called base thermal, which means those generation sources that can be there regardless of whether there's wind and there's sunshine. And that includes nuclear, that includes natural gas-driven facilities, it includes coal-driven facilities, includes some hydroelectric or, you know, water-generated electricity. Let's talk about the natural gas-driven facilities. Okay. Right. So these are generation, big generators that deliver electricity based on burning natural gas to turn it into electricity. The 
incredible thing about the February event is no one really appreciated the interconnectedness between the natural gas supply and these generation facilities. The generation facilities contract to have enough natural gas delivered to them at the correct pressure and in the correct volumes, and if that fails to materialize, then they cannot generate electricity. So what happened is the natural gas facilities upstream where the wells are started to fail because of freezing. That meant that the electric generation plants couldn't get enough supply to generate their base load of electricity. Meanwhile, the natural gas facilities further depended on having electricity in order to run their equipments to pump enough natural gas and pressurize it to get it to the generation plant. So what you have is an endless do loop of failure. And the electricity shut down the natural gas and the natural gas shut down the electricity. And that's why we had to kick so many people off the grid because that system failed. Dominoes falling all across the state there. And then, as you said earlier, while these dominoes are falling, everybody in the state is kick turning up the thermostat or in some way demanding more electricity than they usually right. use. Absolutely. Now. And layer on top of that, the Texas Railroad Commission diverted natural gas supply to residential delivery for those people who could heat their homes with natural gas further compounding the interdependency of electricity and natural gas and the failures. Now, we're a big state in Texas. We have borders with Louisiana, Oklahoma. We were having a problem generating enough electricity. Why couldn't we just holler over at our good friends in Louisiana or New Mexico and say, hey, could you send us a little power here? It's getting kind of dark. By and large, we are isolated from the rest of the grids throughout the United States. There's an east system, and there's a west system, and then there's the Texas ERCOT system. And the Texas ERCOT system, by and large, is not connected to those other two systems, even though those other two systems share all kinds of interconnections. So, for example, if power goes out in Kentucky, they can get it from Indiana, right? Texas is isolated, and We did not build those interconnections 30, 40 years ago because there was a desire to keep us isolated from the federal oversight. So that is why we stand alone, except for pockets such as El Paso and the Panhandle, which get their electricity from other systems. So let's talk about financially what was going on in February, at the same time we were having these physical problems with the grid and its operation. So interestingly, because our grid works on quote, free market principles, end quote, what's supposed to happen is that there is an offer price to sell electricity and there is a corresponding acceptance to buy the electricity at a given price. And every 15 minutes, the ERCOT operator prints the prices at which electricity is being settled. And it is supposed to, as we know from free market, supply and demand, those curves meet to set the price. Normally, electricity trades for 20 to $50 a megawatt hour, which is the basis of selling electricity. But when electricity is scarce, we have a statute that says the price should go as high as $9,000 a megawatt hour when the system is in an emergency. And the reason for that, it's like a tornado signal. When ERCOT starts printing $9,000 prices, it means every generator generate every electron of electricity that you can possibly generate. That system financially failed at the same time the physical failures happened. Instead of printing prices at a $9,000 
$50,000 when we were having to kick everybody off the grid the morning of February 15th. It instead kept scaling the prices down because the software hadn't been designed to account for the load that had gotten kicked off. Yes. So it was artificially balancing the prices at a lower level and further compounding the ability of the system to drive the electricity to consumers. We had some, literally some dark days in February, but we ultimately did get the lights back on and thawed out after a few days of some real turmoil there. High level what actions were taken to get us back to some semblance of normalcy after this crisis hit us so hard? A few things. On February 15th, when supply was so less than demand, approximately 1.20 a.m., ERCOT started kicking people off the grid. So whole swaths of the Texas populace, approximately 4.5 million people, were put into the dark so that the grid would stabilize. And at the same time, they declared EEA3, or Electricity Emergency level three, which is the highest alarm, to force as much power online as possible and to scale back demand as much as possible. And later that day, the PUC set the price, declaring that it should have been 9,000 the whole time to 9,000 to call up as much capacity as possible. Over the course of the next couple of days, some of the electric generators that ran on natural gas were able to come back online. Obviously, the demand remained depressed because all those people had been kicked off the grid and eventually come Wednesday or Thursday, things are starting to stabilize enough to where most people are starting to get power restored and wind and solar also pick back up a little bit during that time and we exit the emergency status on Friday. Now a lot of people say ERCOT should have ended the emergency status about 48 hours later which would have put the price back down to normal levels and not at 9000 and a lot of litigation is resulting over the $9,000 price. Moving from February to where we find ourselves today, seems to me that there's been forward-looking response to what happened in February in terms of changes by the legislature to some of the structural issues about how we organize our grid, and there's been some backwards-looking action as well, litigation looking back on people that had to spend a lot of money or that went out of business or what have you. And that's what I'd like to focus on now is our response, both the forward-looking reorganizations and the backward-looking litigation, lawsuits, checks that need to get written to people. And some of that may not be in litigation. It may just be settling up financially when large obligations were incurred. Can you walk us through sort of in an order that seems sensible to you, the structural issues and the litigation type issues that we're now dealing with as a state? Okay, so let's peel off the straightforward part, which is the litigation. So we have personal injury and property damage litigation that has been consolidated in multi-district litigation. My heating system failed. My apartment building was no good. Yeah, a lot of it is, a good example is there are claims filed by people who own apartment building complexes where because the electricity failed, the water systems in the building froze up, damaging the entire apartment complex and basically condemning it. And so those people are suing ERCOT and the PUC and possibly others claiming that they should not have been subjected to that property damage. There are personal injury claims where people have died 
suing again ERCOT and the PUC and often some other state actors claiming that their deaths were caused by the actions of the regulators and agency officials. The MDL, there's several hundred cases at this point, and of course, as you know, we've got two or maybe more years for us to see all of those cases sure. filed. Then there is the $9,000 pricing litigation, and there's some very interesting questions of Administrative Procedure Act and direct appeals under the Public Utility Regulatory Act of 1999. So a lot of these things are consolidated before the Austin Court of Appeals, and there are complaints that the price shouldn't have been $9,000, and then there are arguments that the price should have been $9,000 earlier than when it was. So litigation there that's proceeding then there is a ton of private party litigation over force majeure issues. So all those natural gas producers who did not deliver to pipelines or pipelines that did not deliver to electric generators, there's a lot of force majeure or let me out of my contract litigation going on there. That'll keep the courts busy for a while probably. It should and let's also mention that we still have the Texas Supreme Court not even answering whether ERCOT can actually be sued. So yes, that's... That issue. We'll be back and yes. back and back again some more. So there's our litigation that's going to be in the courts for them to resolve and for our state Supreme Court probably to weigh in several times. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we still have ERCOT, PUC, and a grid to manage. There was a great deal of discussion about this in our last legislative session. Where did we end up? So the legislature did take some action on this. It did require some winterization of both electric facilities and natural gas facilities, with the Railroad Commission determining which natural gas facilities should be winterized. And to my knowledge, there's been very little done on that front. The legislature also added a few commissioners to the PUC, required that all of the board of directors of ERCOT be Texas residents because there was a complaint that optically it looks better if these people are actually in Texas when they're making decisions about electric supply, even though we have experts all over the United States who fulfill those roles. And then on the pricing issue, the legislature offered some temporary relief to consumers, and which is the retail customers, but more significantly is providing for what we call securitization, which are an ability for the retail electric providers who needed to pay $9,000 a megawatt hour for electricity didn't have the funds to be able to pay it, so they're able to take out bonds and pay them back over 30 years. So everything's been fixed and we have nothing to worry about. I feel better. Do you feel like everything's been fixed and we can all just go back and uh, turn on our power equipment? Or do you think there might be some further changes structurally, financially, and otherwise that our system might require? I think, personally, David, I have to disagree with you a bit and say that we need a fundamental overhaul of the system. Tell us about that. One of the great problems here, I think, is that the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing in a very complicated situation in which we need our government to function at maximum knowledge base and expertise. A good example is that the Railroad Commission and the PUCT didn't know what each other were doing. The Railroad Commission is diverting gas away from the electric supply. The PUC doesn't even understand that that's function of the Railroad Commission to do that. And then we have the completely misunderstood interdependency between natural natural gas and electricity that was exposed by this. 
I personally would advocate that we need a new agency that oversees our energy production and delivery from soup to nuts and does so not only for today, but for planning for 20, 30, 40 years in the future. If we intend to maintain our prominence as an energy producing state, I think that's the way that we capitalize on our abundant resources here. Short of that, I would observe that ERCOT has undertaken a pretty massive project to shift us away from so much of a market that is driven just by the electricity that is delivered and a little bit more towards a securing excess capacity type of system. Up until February, the only way a generator made any money is if it generated a megawatt of electricity and delivered it, okay? So nobody was paid to have excess capacity to generate more megawatts of electricity if someone else couldn't do it. ERCOT's rethinking some of its system to be able to better provide in situations of scarcity. And then beyond that, I think we really need to think about use and demand. If you can afford to buy a more efficient air conditioner and replace your 20-year-old air conditioner, do it. If you can afford to put a power wall in your garage so that you have a little excess capacity if and when you get kicked off the grid, or you can put solar on your roof so you can supply some of your needs, do it. I think microgeneration sites and distributed generation that are closer to where electricity is used are a really good idea for our future. Our former governor, Rick Perry, and former Secretary of Energy commented that Texans didn't mind the occasional power outage if it meant our independence from national federal regulation of our power grid. Given the events of February and your own views about things, does that seem like a wise course of action for the future, or would you recommend we connect our grid technically to either the east or west grids in North America? Well, I would say that the 700 to 1,200 people still being counted who lost their lives as a result of this would argue otherwise. But even beyond the individualized personal costs and the tremendous hardship that it imposed on all of Texas for a week, if you are a company that wants to participate in the Texas economic miracle and perhaps relocate to Texas, you have a checklist. And number one, two, or three on that list is reliability of infrastructure. If Texas cannot reliably deliver power to the people and companies who need it, Texas will no longer be the Texas miracle. Today I welcome special guest Krista Castaneda, an intelligent and articulate voice about energy issues in Texas. She explained what exactly happened in February 2021 to plunge much of Texas into darkness without electricity and raises questions about whether we are working hard enough and thinking creatively enough to protect ourselves from another crisis with our state's electricity grid. For upcoming episodes, I expect to have more interviews with other notable voices from around Texas and to address the important topics of mask mandates in schools and cities in response to the COVID pandemic, as well as the enormous practical impact of Texas's new anti-abortion statute. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other Happy Satisfied listeners and leave a good review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.